I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to episode 151 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Scottish author David F. Ross. His debut novel, The Last Days of Disco, inspired by the jam's 1979 classic album Setting Suns, became an international bestseller in 2015. We're going to learn all about his discovery of the jam in the late 1970s and the influences and connections that remain in play to this day. The thrill of live performance being one of these examples, David has seen Paul Weller on stage on so many occasions. We're talking about the jam in Glasgow when he was just 15, the Style Council in concert on many occasions, and so many of Paul Weller live as a solo artist as well. You're going to love this one as well. Another real fan favourite. Let's get into it. David, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Pan. Pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Now, I know you're a fan because we have artwork in the background that I'm looking at, posters of the Style Council, Absolute Beginners. But actually, this kicks off way before that, right? This kicks off in the jam days. So we're going to dig into all your memories yep. about being a f- massive fan over the years and, and what this music and what Mr. Weller means to you, because it's fair to say he's been a huge inspiration, right? Yeah, I think um, hugely influential and not only developing identity as a person, you know, I know that sounds a bit potentially overblown and quite deep but you know I, I think uh, you know, we'll talk a wee bit about how I maybe first came to hear the jam and what age if I tell you a wee bit about the background consequences to that and maybe it would it, it would be understandable why that was probably I, I felt like that was a wee bit of a life raft at a point in time in life when I really needed it you know in mid-teenage years Kilmarnock where I live and lived at that time was divided basically between uh, emerging mods and and rockers not not to anything like the same extent as Brighton or anything like that but there was definitely a mod scene that was something of a centre for Scotland and, and, and Ayrshire and Kilmarnock and there was also um, kind of heavy rock scene and the pub music and stuff like that so that you know grasping onto that kind of identity in uh, 1978-79 was a really big deal you know you were probably if you were male because it's I guess it was a predominantly male thing, music obsession here at that time. Um, you were kind of falling into one camp or the other, to be honest. So I'm really glad, you know, the posters, the the Fred Perry, the short haircut and stuff like that might have looked a hell of a lot different if I'd fallen into the other. Well, you wouldn't be here talking to me now. I, definitely, definitely <laughs> not. So, you know, so be appearing I, on a different podcast. Yeah. Things happen. Things happen for a reason, Dan. You know that synchronicity thing. You know, I I made that choice. 
1979 when Setting Sons came out and somewhere down the line in idea space I knew we were going to be having this conversation <laughs> 50 years 40, 50 years later you know yeah yeah yeah. otherwise you'd be on Desperately Seeking Aussie right <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that influence. Let's talk about you as a teenager, because so many people have talked to me about how the jam were kind of a school, you know, the school band. It was, you know, it was yeah. kids. And I guess there wasn't a huge age difference between you and Mr. Weller, but it was a kind of teenage band to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a bit of background, a wee bit further back, um, I, I was born in Glasgow. My mum sadly died when I was seven quite suddenly, you know, and so from the age of seven to probably about 14, my dad and I kind of dislocated a wee bit and moving around and eventually my dad married someone from Ayrshire and because her job was more kind of stationed in Ayrshire, we moved down here. I think probably it's kind of sometimes hard to look back in, in, on those times, but I definitely by the time I was maybe about 14 in a new kind of environment and you're trying to find identity and association with people that you haven't really grown up with. And that's quite a, you know, that, that's definitely quite a tough time as I, as I found. Um, football and music were the things that ultimately, like most people, connect you. I guess it wasn't really until hearing Setting Sons, sharing that experience, I think, with people who felt similarly about that, I really started to feel uh, you know, a bit, a bit more comfortable about who I was. You know, I had a massive, massive influence. I look back in that now and think it's not necessarily the best jam album. Um, you know, and at times not necessarily even my favourite album, but it'll be forever with me in terms of what it said at a point in time when I needed something to connect to and being a fan of the jam and you know, finding some comradeship, for want of a better expression, with people who felt the same way. It's trite to say it saved my life, but to some extent, I, I can look at it in that and think it definitely saved the direction of my life, if you know what I mean. We moved down here and into areas that uh, would be lazily described now as socially deprived, you know, and a lot of the people that I knew at that time um, took different courses in life and ended up in jail and through uh, drug programs and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, I, I, whilst I can't attribute everything down to hearing one album, I, I do place quite a lot of stall and points in your life that, you know, open your eyes to things that then take you in a different direction. So for me, it's wrapped up in creativity and an interest in language and an interest in, you know, art, which led to the job that I do, you know. As you say that, I was thinking that it occurs to me that the, you know, the connection is with the words as much as with Mr. Weller, with Bruce, with Rick, with that oh, yeah, ethos yeah, of the band, yeah. right? And But also the fact that you kind of arrive almost like halfway through the jams period in terms of um, publishing and releasing material. So you've already got this back castle because, you know, they were ploughing out the stuff, weren't they? Single after single yeah. after single. And we're already, you know, set by setting suns. There's already three albums you can dig back into. So you you exploring the back catalogue as well. Yes, it's probably an age thing and I Again, you like to think of yourself as relatively unique in a circumstance and unique in that relationship with music and musicians and all the rest of it. Um, there's no way I could claim that, you know, by 79, that there was an army of people all dressed exactly the same and identical parkas and, you know, the badges and all that, right? Yeah. But for, again, for that point in life and what I kind of needed, maybe as a kind of vulnerable kid at that point in time, that's probably, I, I needed that, you know. Now, don't get me wrong, it might have come from somewhere else. And it's, it's always amuses me to think that Setting Sons and London Colin were released within about three or four weeks of each other, the tail end of 1979, you know, like, now both of these records, if Push Came to Shove and I was to list, you know, maybe ten albums that are the bedrock of my life, they'd both be there. You never want to try and talk to people about music and think, well, you know, music when I was a teenager was so much better than when you were a teenager or whenever my kids were teenagers, whatever. Every age has got to find their own thing. But I think the thing about music at a point where your personality is developing and you're becoming the person that you are, that if you're open to it and receptive to what it gives you, it definitely changes you. And for me, it changed. I, I'm convinced it changed me for the better. It gives you political values. It gives you social conscience. You're right to highlight the lyrics because, you know, the music was exciting. Don't get me wrong. But there was something in lyrically that kind of spoke to me and always has right the way through all the different periods of 
what Paul Weller's been producing. Is that the impression that he gave of, you know, obviously they're coming from him, but he talks about the fact that they're not necessarily always personal. They're, they're writing in the 30s, he's no. painting pictures in the same way as you do with your books, but they do feel personal, don't they? They do feel that he's writing and he's speaking to you as a listener. Yeah, it's a unique skill that, you know, I, whether I've achieved it or not, you know, have tried to take into literature that you're in a personal conversation with an audience or one, you know. That, for a musician, at any rate, that's a, that's a, an incredible skill to have. Sometimes, probably why you know, looking ahead, I think sometimes probably why I think the more intimate gigs that Paul Weller does are always more successful than the kind of stadium festival type things because there is that personal connection with the lyrics that you know is, is reinforced more when you're in a smaller group. I think. Let's talk about live. So your first ever gig was the Jam Glasgow Apollo, nineteen seventy nine. I think I'm ashamed to admit at the age of only just 14 or just turned 15. Uh, I was a bit drunk at that gig. Uh, <laughs> don't massively remember a lot of it. There's two There's two reasons for that, actually. Glasgow Apollo, for anyone who had been there at that time, the stage was about 15 feet high. So if you were anywhere near the front, you, you basically, <laughs> you would look up, you'd look up and see the, the underside of Paul Weller's chin or Debbie Harry's chin or something like that, but you wouldn't be able to see anybody <laughs> at the back. The other reason, I think, as I said, you know, there was quite a few of us starting to indulge in, in Sweetheart Stout or whatever the hell it was at, the, at that time for the first time. So I, I don't remember a lot about it, but the Vapors were the support band. I remember. You see the footage. These are hot, sweaty, pretty ferocious affairs, you know. Yeah. Um, sweat dripping off the walls and the ceiling and all that, right? Yeah, I mean, later gigs before the band broke up, I mean, they were electrifying life. That's not a word for it. I mean, it's just... Um, in, in a way that I don't actually remember. I, I don't really think too many other bands were. Just, uh, it was, it was um, yeah, amazing. Uh, just an amazing experience to see them live. And where was your position? Can you remember at least where you stood? You mentioned like you weren't right at the front then staring up on uh, his chin. <laughs> Probably about two or three rows from the front, you know, and, and stalls. You used to have these massive, massive bouncers trying to stop people getting from the front rows and the front seats, you know. At other times I've seen the jam at the Apollo was up in the circle and famously it's an old Victorian theatre you know it was the old Green's Playhouse hugely significant to Glasgow come back to that story later on because the Style Council play a part in us as well actually but um, another time being up in the circle and really fearing that the the whole thing was going to just collapse you know (laughs) because <laughs> um, it's bouncing up and down on this old timber circle and it was just it was astonishing but there's bits of it you're thinking how, how is structurally how is this actually still standing with all this do you know a- <laughs> <laughs> I love this idea that you're finding your connection you're finding yeah you're in a new place you're finding your people and yeah. it's the band that's connecting um, you and your friends and try and pinpoint why it was that uh, this band connected so much with people your age. I think that cultural waves took time to reach the suburbs, you know. So I think the reason that the jam caught everybody, uh, that, that imagination in Ayrshire is we were probably about a year behind punk, you know. So by the time it works its way out of it's a famous phrase I think it was maybe I don't I can't remember I don't want to attribute it to the wrong person but hmm. in the postcard days um, in Glasgow I think there was a famous phrase going around that London farts and it takes all this time for that vapour to work its way up to Newcastle <laughs> and flavour to Glasgow and then by the time it gets to Glasgow it's distilled into something completely different before it's working its way into the suburbs and by the time it gets to the suburbs nobody can smell it anymore and it, <laughs> There's something about that, that when there was a real buzz about music and youth music and punk was probably the spark of that. By the time it had reached the suburbs of outside Scotland and Glasgow, punk was effectively over. That kind of wave of interest, I think, was probably around maybe 78, 79 when it's hitting these kind of areas and the jam were probably the epitome of that a wee bit. I don't, I don't know necessarily that there was quite the, the kind of hardcore punk environment in Scotland at that time. Although, funnily enough, there's a real kind of West Coast, East Coast split 
and how that music influenced the future generation. So on the West Coast, you, you've got bands like Orange Juice and the Bluebells and Altered Images and the Postcard scene, which is maybe a little bit more melodic and a bit more soulful. And then on the East, you've got the Scars and Joseph K and, you know, bands like Fire Engines, who are probably a bit more on the Joy Division type spectrum if you know what I mean so mm. punk's influence I think probably when you're looking at the west coast of Scotland was probably a bit the more melodic band so you might argue that the jam would have fallen maybe more into that I think that's probably what marked them out as being slightly different from punk contemporaries you know they had that kind of melodic angle and a wee, and a wee bit more of a connection to the soul and the stacks and the you know the Motown background and it's fair to say you're, I mean, you're getting on board at the right time in the sense that this band are then huge. You know, the jam are suddenly then topping the charts. They're being played on daytime radio or breakfast radio. This is a great time to be on board because the singles that come, you know, it's hit after hit after hit from that point on, isn't it? There's a coalescing of a lot of things going on here that spark interest in young people, I guess. You know, that what come from a working class background and labour voting background. and But all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to move into that era of Thatcher's impact on, I mean, it's the starting point in that, but, you know, you, you can see the, the, the strains of that coming in 1979. And there'd been a real split between potentially English attitudes and politics and Scottish attitudes and politics and the dividing line right down the middle of that. Having said that, it, it's, it's weird then that you know, people like me would find the identification of what it is to be Scottish and working class and that sort of combination of being of an age where you've got the world at your feet, but not necessarily knowing what that opportunity might represent is encapsulated in a band like The Jam from who, who are writing from a walking suburban environment. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, that is true. You're right, yeah. It's, it's weird that um, even though identity and Scottishness, and you can call that whatever you want, you know, culturally finds its way into that representation so much from bands like The Jam or The Smiths or, you know, Elvis Costello or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is that time of, I think back to, you know, me being a teenager and um, actually, you know, I was discovering, well, I would have been, what, 16, 17, something like that for the first time, a similar type of thing where, you know, you're excited about life. This is, you know, you can see a world of opportunity ahead of you, but it's also, you know, all kinds of things are happening in your head, your body, trying to think about what you're going to do for a job and all that kind of stuff. This is also effing terrifying at the same time, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I mentioned earlier on there that sometimes music can be a life raft for things like that. And I definitely at that age found it in the music of the jam, you know, Weller's lyrics and stuff. There's so many things that I could identify with and, and, I, and, and, you, and you don't get me wrong, you're impressionistic at that age and you make, you make leaps of judgment, but, you know, probably best identified. And I'm, I'm not the first to say this and the lyrics of that's entertainment, you know, capturing exactly what that, you know, what life is like, the joys and the frustrations and the boredom of growing up in backward looking towns. And that's not in any way to be disrespectful to the place you grow up. It's, it's just there's maybe a lack of excitement and there's, it's not a big city and bands and music that you want to go and see don't ever come and play there. So, you, you know, you always have to go somewhere else. I did actually meet them once and I, I was on 1981. They were on a tour called the Bucket and Spade Tour. Uh, and they came to, not Kilmarnock, but Irvin, Irvin Magnum Centre they played. And at the time, John Weller had put a note out in the NME for local bands to send either a cassette or, and if it was in any way half decent, they would consider putting them on the bill at the, the lower point of it. So at that time, my mate and I were with the DJ, were helping with a local band and playing music for them. They were a band called Fifth Column. Four young guys that we were friends with and Dale, the singer from Fifth, I think it was Dale, had written to John Weller saying, you're coming to Irvin, any chance we could get on the bill? And he wrote back and said, aye, that would be okay on the basis of their songs. So I think they had basically five cover versions that they were playing. And then the night before the gig, the jam and the entourage and all the rest of it were up in Kilmarnock, the band... Fifth Column were invited to meet them uh, at Curry House in Kilmarnock, the Koh-i-Nur. And we went along with them, you know, like as sort of roadies for this local kind of garage band, you know, and met them and it was great. And I, I still sometimes get notes from people and there's a girl from uh, the Caribbean who used to live here. And I mentioned this before because that band basically were the formation of 
the miraculous Vespers who, be, who were in my second novel, you know. And she wrote to me and said, I was there that night. I was in the corner. And when they all left, I asked the barman if I could have the pint glass that Paul Weller was drinking out of. And she said, I've still got it in the house. You know? <laughs> So this this we uh, this this weird thing after sound effects biggest band in the UK and they're sitting in a curry house with eight or nine hangers on from a small band who all got into the gig the next night as part of that entourage and they they played the five songs and then the questions were the actual support band and then the jam played so that was brilliant I mean that was with a kickabout with. Bruce and Rick uh, down on the Irvine Beach Park after the sound check. Weller, I think, was he was in the tour bus reading. He didn't want to come out and play football. So, <laughs> so at, at least, at least I can say at one point I have actually met Paul Weller, albeit wow. briefly. And that's a lovely story, isn't that? I mean, the great, the great thing of uh, giving the local bands the support and stuff as well. But I think it's uh, we heard on the podcast already from Nicky Weller that Paul Weller's terrible at football. So maybe that was it. Yeah, John Weller was phenomenal. Back then, I mean, the, the things that they would do to acknowledge the fans, letting everybody in at the sound checks and stuff like that, it was, it was just, again, those sort of things didn't really happen with other bands. They were so connected to the fan base, I think, and so in tune with. Again, that's that's probably what inspires that level of loyalty over the years, I think. You know. We'll talk about how the jam influenced the last days of disco in a sec, your debut novel particularly, yeah. and, and your writing generally would be interesting. But I'd love to hear about your reaction to when it's all over. So Mr. Weller pulls the plug. How did, how did you feel? How did you hear? I think NME primarily. Um, and then there was a famous, uh, can't remember if it was nationwide or something. Yeah, like that. Nation, the nationwide on, TV interview. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's standing on a beachfront, and I, I like a lot of people. I thought this is like a death in the family. In fact, you know, this sounds terrible, but not not to be unkind to members, the distant members of my family. I think I was more affected by this than some other people. Um, <laughs> Let's not name them, eh? <laughs> oh, it's terrible. You know, I, 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 you know, there's loads of things I'll tell you I'm, I'm ashamed of now, but you can't be in but honest. I thought that was the end of everything, do you know? I couldn't comprehend what that would potentially mean for me, for music, actually for the relationships I had with my pals, because that was something we had in common. So all of a sudden you're starting to think, right, okay, what are we going to do now? What are we going to talk about if uh, we don't have a new jam album coming out or we're not queuing for tickets to go for a gig or something like that? It's weird because it's such a narrow-minded focus that you couldn't contemplate ever having that relationship with music again with anybody else. There's a few things stand out in, in life. You know, Elvis Presley dying bizarrely for some reason. I remember exactly where I was when that, but that's probably more to do with my dad, you know, and his reaction. John Lennon dying and the jam breaking up. <laughs> it's a big deal. And, that, and, 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 and uh, Dan, that's not an order of importance, by the way. <laughs> but now I get it. I understand. And I've heard these stories and people, you know, have, so many people have these this connection. And some people switched off at that point from music. Well, here's the thing, right? You know, and, and this is really interesting. Circumstances change and life changes and you adapt with that, right? So I think probably within about a month of the jam splitting up, or at least announcing that they were splitting up, I started a relationship with a girl and that girl's now my wife and we've been together ever since. And she didn't really like the jam, but you move further forward a few six months or whatever and the style counsellor, a thing. Again, that kind of disenfranchised a lot of people that I knew who were fans of Jam. And again, what the hell's he doing? This is rubbish, you know. But I really liked it. And I, I think probably I liked it because my wife liked it. You know, it, it was more music that suited her tastes. So all of a sudden, there's a cycle of we're sharing that relationship with music. You know, mm. it's really important to me. It's maybe a wee bit less important to her, but you know, we've got something to connect with, you know. And then the same thing happened again, you know, like when his solo career was just about starting. I was of an age where you're starting to have kids and you, there's a different phase of your life. So all the, all the way through that period, I've kind of felt that the things that Paul Wells preoccupied with in writing have mirrored my own interests. 
you know, so again, back to that point we were talking about earlier on, you're having a one-to-one relationship with someone who's producing something cultural and lyrical that you feel is talking directly to you and the things that you're going through at any one time, good and bad, you know what I mean? That's a really weird thing. So I'm now left wondering whether I'm overly stereotypical as a male, you know, or whether there's something that I've reacted to in what someone like Paul Weller produces and it then begins to shape the direction that I'm going in or whether it's just a complete coincidence, just as a wee link to maybe what we might talk about next. These are the seeds that start to make a novelist think about how things that influence them then become stories. And was there any doubt in your mind at that age that we're now getting into your late teens? Was there? Was this always the focus in terms of, well, I want to work in, in a creative industry, I want to write, I want to you know, create artwork, those types of things? No, no. I, for want of a better expression, fucked about with <laughs> my life um, and have been just... You can wonder whether you make your own luck or whether, you know, certain people are receptive to influences they get from other people. I think I'm probably the latter, actually, but I um, did okay at school, but, you know, was a pretty lazy, to be honest. I was only ever really good at art and English. That was the only things I was good at. And I was asked to politely to leave. It wasn't necessarily an expulsion because that's such a, a hard and dirty word to be honest because I think I got on really well with people I just it was one of those kind of conversations from teachers to head teachers who said look why you're just wasting everybody's time here your own <laughs> included yeah so I left and my mate and I, who's still in the music business now started a mobile DJ business none of us could play music and we're too lazy to try and learn to become a band. <laughs> so mobile DJing became the next best thing. And we, we kind of, at the age of 17, 18, persuaded ourselves that mobile DJing, we were in the music industry, do you know? You were, man. I, 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 I echo this totally. So, so did you have a name, the two of you? Were you some kind of duo? What was it? We... And here's your first Paul Weller influence. When we, we managed to get a gig, we had no stuff, no really no records uh, and no real idea of what we were doing. But we managed to hire some gear from a, a guy who had been a roadie for bands down south. I'm basically telling you the plot of the last days of disco here. Yeah, um, I was going to say. <laughs> so we got, we, we got the gear to do this girl's 18th birthday party in the town. None of us had the confidence to speak. We had no comprehension of the amount of records it would take to carry off a three-hour gig. <laughs> we had no name. And the night before we went out, someone, I think the girl's dad had phoned and said, what's the name of your disco again? And we're kind of looking around. And, and again, back to this point, they're setting suns on the back. And we called it Heatwave. So we called <laughs> it Heatwave. <laughs> Brilliant. Not, not after, so Heatwave Disco, not after um, the Martha and the Vandellas version and not after the American Soul Group, after the Jams version that was on Set and Sons. So that That's was brilliant. That's brilliant. I wish I could echo that. My duo with my mate Nick was called, we were called the Numpsy Brothers. So right. there's no, I don't think, I don't know where that came from. There was no Weller connection. <laughs> I wish, I wish there were, but you know, I love the fact that, so did you have enough records for the gig? We probably would have. And that, this is a straight steal from the book. So I, I, I guess, you know, I've heard most people's novels are, your first novels more autobiographical yeah. than you maybe. Yeah. Uh, you would maybe want to admit, but there's certain things in there that were drawn straight from that storyline. So the first night, we, we had a mate down uh, with us to help carry the gear. We'd hired a van driver that someone had recommended who wanted paid in advance. We'd paid him in advance, needless to say, never came back and picked the stuff up. So we were stuck there. We had drinks balanced on the, the lighting racks with the turntables behind it. Someone came over, knocked the light over the Pints went all over the records. And the, my one uh, remaining memory of that night is when we dried up the records, we basically had two left that we, we could play. And it was Shaking Stevens' Green Door <laughs> and uh, Annika's Turning Japanese. You remember that record? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So those two records must have been played on that girl's birthday party close to about 15 times each. <laughs> 
because we'd basically run out of anything else, you know. It was mad. The records were all drenched in beer and this wooden tray and we couldn't play any of them, you know. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. I love it. Let's talk to Style Council then. So you obviously saw them live. I'm guessing Glasgow Apollo again. Well, yeah. And we would seen them live quite a lot of times actually, but the two that stand out the most are Manchester Apollo one night and Glasgow Apollo the following night. And the Glasgow Apollo one was significant principally because it was the last ever gig at Glasgow Apollo. So the Style Council have got the honour of being the last act to, to ever play there. So the very last night of the Glasgow Apollo. And was that because that balcony was falling down? What was it? Well, and, and people left with chairs and bits of carpet and the guys on uh, the band were all singing, it's coming down on Monday, it's coming... <laughs> It was brilliant. I mean, that that's that, that's one of the highlight gigs, I think. Talk, talk me through what it was, because obviously the band live was very different to the band on record in the sense that, I mean, the sound was always involved with the Style Council. You never knew what you were going to get next, yeah. where they were going to yeah. take it. But obviously you have the honorary councillors and you have brass sections and yeah. all different kind of things. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the thing that I found really interesting about it was it went so far away from that conventional, um, right, let's get a, an unknown support act on for 20 minutes maybe a slightly better known support act on for half an hour and then the main band come on at, you know just before nine for a couple of hours right about that time maybe just before that you, you know you had circumstances where Weller would come on first 15 minutes and then there would be a break and your man Vaughn Toulouse at times was the DJ and Junior Giscom and it was like a kind of review thing and I think that took a lot of people a bit of time to get into and you know I think I've read Weller talking about since that sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't you know a, a lot of it, it, it depends on audience reaction Glasgow audiences famously are, are pretty difficult you know particularly the Apollo ones there's a, an absolutely brilliant story I recommend this to everybody because it's probably the best example of an audio book there is John Cooper Clark's audio book um, no, no, I've not heard that no. okay. right, it's okay. amazing you know and if you if you Think of anything with John Cooper Clark. It's like a, uh, a an extended performance. His phraseology is so brilliant, and the stories are fantastic. But he, told, he tells a story about absolutely dying on his arse as a punk poet at the Glasgow Apollo, and then getting the opportunity, being asked if he wants to go back ten months later on the Elvis Costello tour, and saying he definitely wants to go back because his feeling was if he couldn't conquer that fear in that audience and go back then there would be no future for him doing anything like that uh, but it's the Glasgow Apollo he's talking about and that, that that's what it was like you know it was a pretty demanding audience but that night everything just clicked it was just great the structure of it the, the songs the sequencing of everything even the, the, the guests that they had on it was great really really good it's interesting. So I think about, obviously, doing this podcast, you start thinking about some of the things more and more. And I think about the Star Council. And there's a bit of me that goes, if they were more conventional, would they have been? And I don't think the kind of size of the success really matters to Paul and Mick particularly. But you know, if they had played the game a little more, if they had done gigs in a more conventional way, if they had followed up our favourite shop with our yeah. favourite shop too, in terms of style and you know, stylistically and you know, the lyrics and all, all that, would they have been bigger? Would they have had that same worldwide huge success like a band like I don't know the police would have done for instance it's it's interesting because I do I do wonder if railing against it sometimes was to their detriment perhaps yeah I, I think also it's maybe easy to see with hindsight now you know Weller's personality would have subverted all that you know that's it, it, um, I, I don't think there's any circumstance under which he was ever really comfortable with that kind of I mean you can see it in things like Live Aid an amazing thing to do, but not necessarily the baggage of it all. You, even the recording of the Live Aid and the Live Aid gig and all the rest of it, you can see he's not really part of that and kind of uncomfortable with the association of... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How many of the other acts that day reacted, you know? So I, th- I think there's a kind of desire to have things that are valuable to him and a set of values that there's not a lot of other people, other musicians that I see that with, you know. Johnny Marr, maybe, um, I, I kind of get a sense of that from him. So again, you know, like a kind of period of life after the Smiths drifting through guest slots with Brian Ferry and, and the Pretenders and stuff like that, when he could easily have basically just formed another band around him. I think there's, there's something about that kind of desire to be grounded and not to lose sight of where you've come from that I, I think, again, has you know influenced me in the way I want to be perceived, you know? It's also that thing of um, you know, foraging your own path and, and you know, Paul's definitely done that, hasn't he? And, yeah, and, and yeah. even in the most interesting reading, his most recent, you know, as close to an autobiography as we're probably going to get, you know, the book with Dylan Jones, you know, Paul's talking about the level of fame that he had around the Stanley Road time and just being really uncomfortable with that yeah um, so yeah, i think you're right it's kind of shunning it and maybe pushing it to one side because actually that's not what the driving goal is you know i think he's hugely restless positively about um, musical influence so plowing plowing a similar furrow you know um I, I would just would just be alien i think that's what i think has kept his music fresh and his appeal fresh to a whole host of different people who've maybe come in to his career at different times, you know? I mean, it, I mean, I sit and make that comparison with other people in music and think of, you know, someone who's managed to sustain a career that long. There's really not that many, I think, that you could argue are still as valid in terms of their output today as, as they were. I mean, on, on Sunset, for example, I mean, that's a phenomenal song, you know? And easily as good as anything that has come before it. And it's not yeah. a one-off. I, I listen to that album all the time. It's, and it's not just because it's new, you know, or relatively new. It's just a terrific album. And actually, you mentioned influence there. And I'm guessing much like me, Paul has also come across as an influencer in the sense that the bands that he mentions, the artists that he mentions, the people he covers, or the, you know, yeah. are people that then suddenly become part of your life as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the way musical influence goes. It's not like, um, you know, my, my family joke about the fact that if Paul Weller wears a, a Shetland cardigan or something like that, then I'm on the phone trying to find out where it is. And that's true. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's undoubtedly true. In fact, it, uh, my, every time I go down to London, I always take whoever's with me down Chiltern Street and into Sunspell or John's. I was going to say we're popping into like Sunspell. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And their argument is, it, <laughs> Christ's sake, it's not because you're interested in the clothes, it's because you think he's going to be sitting in a coffee shop in the street. And I can't really deny that, I have to say. That's that's undoubtedly true. But again, there's that feeling of, yes, I'm interested in the fashion and the clothes and the musical influences and the literature and all the rest of it. And I always was, because I think between probably ages of 14 to 18, that's where I was getting inspiration to go and look. I thought if well I was interested in the road to Wigan Pier or something like that, then I wanted to know why and I wanted to be interested in it. But I, th- I think that's what influence is. You're, that, you're like a sponge at that age and, and you're absorbing a whole lot of things that you know, previously and before that, you might have been relatively narrow-minded with. But I think that's fascinating. I think it's fascinating how influence and suggestion captures young people and takes them off in different directions, you know? I doubt, I mean, I love it now and there's barely a week goes by that I don't play it, but I, I doubt that without Weller's influence, I would ever have really cottoned on to Curtis Mayfield's albums, particularly Curtis. I can't imagine my life without that record now. Or Zombies or things that have kind of come from reading interviews and you pick up other things as well, to be honest. And and I always thought Morrissey was good for that as well, particularly on the literature. The combination of maybe Weller and Elvis Costello and Morrissey and that that kind of era of maybe slightly more Paddy McAloon as well, slightly more literate music or literally minded music, I think is the foundation for where I would have been interested in writing. As I mentioned earlier on, I'm not musical, much to my um, eternal regret, but I can find an outlet for creativity with words in another manner. 
But I think they're connected, I have to say. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, that? Because I also think as I've got older, I've become more more open to different sounds as well. And, and some of that has come through Paul recommending things like, you know, even somebody like Erlen Cooper. I, I love the band Erlen the Carnival, yeah. but then, you know, yeah. I would never in a million years have dreamt of listening to a classical no, album. No. These last couple of albums have been, uh, they're just stunning. They're beautiful. But if you keep that open-mindedness from, you know, like, like you say, that sponge mentality of kind of, you know, I'm just going to soak it all up and experience it. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, let me ask you about the poster in the background. So I mentioned earlier at the beginning there were two posters in the background one of them is style cancer so we've covered that but the other one is absolute beginners okay i mean i'm assuming this book would have connected through to you through mr weller right yeah um absolute beginners would have become knowledge to me first of all through the song and then an understanding that the song was connected to the literature you know the film came later on but i think because Colin McInnes is writing, and particularly writing about London, is so central to mod philosophy and, and iconography, you know, that if it had become part of a song uh, that I was really interested in, then I would have wanted to read that. I have to say, I, I didn't grow up in a family where books and literature were everywhere. I mean, I'm far from it. I don't really recall reading much as a child until probably starting to find influences from musicians that I liked and things that they were interested in because to me that seemed like an extension of that identity that they had that I probably wanted to be a part of, you know. So the Colin McInnes book I read and loved, it started off uh, an interest in what might be termed working class literature or urban literature or nothing to do with fantasy and nothing to do with dystopian issues and stuff like that. It, it was really about how young people lived their life and connected and took advantage of opportunities and sometimes not ultimately to their advantage at the end of the day. And really that's the that's the core backbone of Last Days of Disco. So, you know, it, it might be argued Last Days of Disco is my attempt to try and write something similar to Absolute Beginners or Billy Liar or the books of Barry Hines. But set in early eighties, Kilmarnock, Ayrshire, you know. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because then you kind of go back to those days, back to, you know, 1979 there, Setting Suns album, your, your first discovery of the jam and Weller's music and the lyrics and all that. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't get here. We wouldn't get to Last Days of Disco, I don't think, without that. And we're now on to what? Novel number six and this becoming, you yeah. know, a huge part of your life and you being a writer, an international bestseller and all that doesn't yeah, come I mean, that, without that, the discovery of the jam, does it? There's no question Last Days of Disco wouldn't exist without Setting Suns. The undercurrent in that record of, I mean, I know, I, I know the whole. It would have been interesting to, to maybe listen to have wondered what that album might have become had the original concept behind it been followed through. You know, yeah, um, this idea of the three friends, the full, the full concept album yeah, idea and, and was initially there. Yeah. So last days of Disco really is about two young friends with a third to the side who are trying to develop what they think is. A business idea in music in the context of that business being controlled by local gangsters. And on the left-hand side of the story, uh, the family part of it is the Falklands War and the development of Thatcher's attitude to that. And the reason that that's part of the story is um, one of the characters, elder brother, who's got a fractious relationship with his father, has joined the army as a mechanism of getting away from them all and finds himself getting sent to the Falklands. I think the original tagline I had for the front of the book was something to do with the, the fear of being sent to the Falklands by the biggest gangster of them all. So that prompted that idea of the research into Thatcher's speeches at the time. So the, the book's kind of populated with Thatcher's opportunism told through certain interviews and, and speeches at the, at the start of different parts of the book. The feeling being that, that Margaret Thatcher's a character in this book because she's got such a per pervasive influence on the direction of all of their lives. Um, and at the end of the day, as is sadly often the case in these circumstances, the only people that win other people in power, everybody else suffers, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting trajectory and, you know, hopefully people find the book funny as well, but there was a serious aspect to it as well. And I think that serious aspect was me trying to imagine what Setting Sons might have been like had that concept of friends who are going through tough times and the little boy soldiers aspect of it is, is 
you know, the element of that real challenge in their lives. And we had that with the Falklands, you know. Paul Weller so often has been kind of praised for his ability to capture the spirit of different time periods, to capture the spirit of those, um, you know, societal contexts in his music. And here we are, you doing the same. So how do you approach that? Let's talk about the creation of this book, particularly. This is your first novel, first you know time you're going, OK, I'm going to write about this. How did you do that? How did you kind of make sure that you were telling the story of the times as much as the, te- the story um, of these, these three lads? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure, Dan. You know, I think... It's the most difficult question. Every time you do book festivals, you know, two questions that you you know you're going to get asked and you never, ever have an idea of how you're going to answer them is, what's the book about and how did you do this? Because to some extent, your writing process would normally take me probably about two years to write a book, you know. And yes, I've got a job, so, you know, I have other responsibilities, so I've got to fit that around that. But by the same token, what it might resemble at the end of the process compared to what you thought it might have been at the beginning can often be really different. I don't really, now anyway, I don't really plot books out. You know, there's the starting of an idea and there's characterisation. But to some extent, you've got to see where the characters lead you, if that makes sense. Is that just literally just by writing? Just by writing, yeah. writing, writing? And yeah. all, okay. Everybody says, you know, when you get to the end of that at the beginning, I think Irvin Welsh said, you know, that you get to the end of her first draft and it's absolute shite, you know. <laughs> and, and there's, and there's no, there's no way it's anything other than that. But what it probably has is a writing style and a philosophy about how that story's being told that can then be shaped into something. If you align it to the music industry, you might call it, here's a whole series of rough demos and sketches, ideas that have to go through a process of editing to get to a point where they're actually meaningful as a piece of art. Back in the day, though, when we were, I was doing the first one, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had a rough idea that I, I needed to try and frame this story somehow, basically because for my own sanity more than anything else so it's maybe a bit like describing you're trying to do a jigsaw puzzle you know you have to create the border for it first and then once you've got the borders all aligned you know that a picture's going to emerge you're just not entirely sure what that picture might be other than what it tells you on the front of the box but you've got to find the pieces to put it together and make it something coherent the parameters for me in this were the trajectory of the Tory party from the point where they were really in trouble, to be honest, at that, you know, at the beginning of 1982. And it always struck me that they latched on to the Falklands War as a real opportunistic way of pointing everybody's eyes in another direction. So away from all the fucking chaos that they were creating in the UK, let's focus everybody on this fake war 8,000 miles away. And through this jingoistic attitude to how you galvanise support, all of a sudden they come out the other end of that in a different place. Now, doesn't it take a genius to then work out that's the Ukraine story? I was going to say, yeah, echo, echoes you know I mean? of what's going on right now, right, yeah. So I had the parameters of that because that's an interesting story arc in itself. So you're then fitting all these challenges and family issues and the fact that one of these people in the storyline is going to be a part of that story. Um, so that's a pressure and, and you, you're working a story around that, you know. I think, and this is a thing, if, if you, if anybody who looks at my books, there's a playlist at the back of every book, every book. To me, it's not just there for decoration or to show off how clever I am or how diverse my record collection is or whatever. It's a really important structural thing for me because the music actually helps me imagine and identify the time that I'm writing in. So I can hear a song that's in the playlist at the back of the book and immediately I'm back in that environment in 1982 and and how the music prompts ways in which I felt at that time about things and therefore you can manipulate that to how the characters might feel. So the playlists in all of the books are are vital for me. And the other thing that I, I like, and this again comes back to what we talked about earlier on, books to me should be immersive experiences where they prompt you to go and search out other things, other pieces of art, other pieces of culture and music, whatever. And an insight into the sound of the book, right? And I've said this before in interviews that for me, a book has to have a sound. If it doesn't have a sound, then I probably won't get to the end of it because that, then if it doesn't have a sound, it doesn't have a soul. And people have asked me, well, what do you mean by that? How can a book have a sound? And it's, it's a difficult thing to describe, but Danny Garvey, the book that I did 
second last, which won the awards and stuff like that. You know, it's different from other books that I've written in so far as it was predominantly about mental health, to be honest. So it was quite introverted, claustrophobic kind of book. And when people said to me, what's it about or what's it like? I said, well, you go and listen to Joy Division's Isolation. That's what it's like for me, you know. So sound and connection to music running through the book's spine is, for me, vital. So I had 19 songs on the playlist to start with. And the playlist came first on Last Days of Disco. <laughs> oh, really? And, oh, and, there's nine, and there's 19 chapters in the book. Um, they're not all aligned to those songs but again just even thinking about a playlist as something that would influence how the feel and the vibe and the sound of the book might go helped me frame that structure that's a long way of answering the question you asked me but no no that's, that's such an interesting insight into your process and your your way of creating these fabulous books you know that's incredible i love it i have to ask you before we go about weller solo and just a few weeks back paul was on his first proper like european tour for quite a while it would have been like true meanings times so what's that five six years something like that yeah, yeah, yeah um and actually that seems to be most of what he's doing this year we've got it seems to be most of what he's doing we've just finished the forest gigs We've got the support slot at Wembley Stadium with Blur coming up, but then that's it for the UK at the moment. He's then back out to Europe in September. But I mentioned that now just in case my wife's overhearing. Fingers crossed. But I, w- I went to Paradiso, but you were there in Hamburg and you wrote this beautiful write-up about your experience and, you know, and some of the connections we talked about, the love of Weller from the jam days and all that kind of stuff. You've been to quite a few Weller gigs, obviously, in your time from back to the jam, the style council solo, but it was an emotional experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe about 30, I think, in different incarnations but that was the first time I'd seen a well outside the UK yeah me too um, me too yeah I don't know you, you you get wrapped up in the excitement of that it's different you know um, there's, there's a different vibe in the audience I think even he felt that a wee bit uncertain as to how well known some of the songs were or how well known he might have been but it was um Sorry, I digress a wee bit as to why we went to Hamburg. I The first international book tour I did seven years ago was in Hamburg and it was in a place called the Nochspiel, which is just on the edge of St. Pauli and the Reeperbahn. It was a tour of Germany carried out over maybe about 10 days or something like that with Cologne Literature Festival the next night, which is a really big literary thing. So I went to Hamburg. I'd never been before was really interested in it because of the Beatle connection and all the rest of it and gutted at the fact that the flight was late and we basically got in straight to the gig. And in, in Germany, the book gigs are totally, totally different. You know, they put a band on, there's a DJ, there's it's a completely different experience from pitching up at a Watterson's on a Tuesday night. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 20 or 30 people in the middle of winter, half of whom are there because they're related to you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, the gigs in Germany were fantastic. They, they sound like proper rock and roll in Germany. Well, yeah, it. That, and it made me it made me feel differently about, you know, literary things. That's what we do now and, and for book launches here, you know, you put music on, there's a DJ, it's an event. And people are quite happy to pay tickets for that, you know, because they know they're getting something that, and my demographic, to be honest, is are people who buy music as well. So books in the music shops and stuff like that makes a lot of sense, even though it's fiction. Anyway, went to Hamburg, did this great gig, went with the organisers and my publisher to a boat in the harbour for a party afterwards, got a bit drunk, got back to the hotel three in the morning, and we had to get up really early and go, you know. And I was always a bit devastated that I hadn't seen more of Hamburg, both for the Beatles connection and also the architectural connection because it's you know it's regeneration after the wars amazing you know it's a it's a phenomenal place to go so when I found out he was playing and playing in the same hall that the Beatles had played in the Kaiser Keller below I thought well that's for me you know definitely going to try and get tickets for that and it was astonishing my wife sometimes a wee bit kind of oh fucking you know you uh, not Weller again god I I think you love Paul Weller more than you love me and how are you going to answer you'll know that Dan how are you going to answer that question when your wife asks you that honestly (laughs) but even even, I just say yes (laughs) even she when he came on at the beginning and we we basically two rows from the front a tiny wee hall by his standards she had said to me I have to be a bit emotional about this you know so that's that was the best gig she's ever been to with Paul Weller as well. Happy to admit it. So we came straight back home and uh, booked tickets for Barcelona in September. You've got to have a word with your wife and we'll catch up <laughs> meeting Barcelona in September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to get a book tour out of there. <laughs> I think the other connection is obviously, you know, we were deprived of it 
through the, the kind of lockdowns yeah. and stuff like that. So for me, there's also been that thirst of like, I, I need to make the most of this now. If this ever happens again, you know, I don't want to be Definitely. locked up. Not just Weller, I'm like, I've got gigs this, I've got gig next yeah. Friday, I've got gig the Friday after, you know, I, I love the live experience and I did miss it. I'd massively missed oh, it. Oh, massive, know? massive. In terms of Weller solo, so would that have been the peak for you then over a, what, 30 year solo career? I think so, yeah. I mean, the gigs at the Barrowlands are always great, but the Barrowlands is, it's a fantastic venue. I mean, it's an iconic venue now and they're brilliant. That properly like goes off, right? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's just the the atmosphere, the the, the scale of the place. Again, you're kind of back to that really hot, sweaty environment, and it's just a great sound as well. But didn't come. I don't say it didn't come close because that makes it sound like it's to his demerit that it didn't come close to Hamburg one. But I think just when you wrap up all the other surrounding circumstances in Hamburg, that's definitely the highlight. I mulled that over after a wee while, and I thought, uh, you know, that that was properly magnificent. And I think that was the thing that made me think, ah, fuck it, I'm going to write something about this, you know, because if I don't, then I want to capture this, how I felt this minute, you know. And I I guess that's what, you know, that's what writing's all about, isn't it? It's funny because I did exactly the same after the Paradiso gig. I was like, I've got to write about this and not not, not as well as you'd written about it, I have to say. But yeah, I just wanted to get this this stuff out of me about that connection between live music and the fact we were deprived. And But isn't that remarkable? Like We're talking, what, 45 something years on? Or 44 years on since your discovery of Paul Weller and then you've just had your best gig. Yeah. Before you go, I have to ask you about your most recent novel. So, uh, December 2022, Dashboard Elvis is Dead, your sixth novel. I mean, you know, prolific. The Last Days of Disco turns into a trilogy. We should mention this. And I'll put all this into the show notes. But this is a departure. This is something different. This is like a road trip and like a murder mystery. And we've got a bit of Scotland and the the US and, and there's still politics and all that. Back to that question that's so difficult to answer. What's the book about? Having processed it now and, and thought about it, I think what it's really about is the decline of America. It's the decline of America and it's definitely a post-Trump novel, even though the timeline of the book doesn't involve him. But I think what's at the heart of it is it's, it's trying to get to this understanding of what is truth anymore. There's a line runs through it about there's, there's no truth, only perspective, you know. And it's probably capturing that idea of if we talk about things that have happened to us in our life or our our experiences and things like that, they they get filtered through the prism of us naturally wanting to present, you know, a particular perspective that is maybe favourable, let's say. So when that gets continually told and retold and retold and retold, you're kind of slightly getting further away from the truth of a circumstance. So it's quite a complex novel on the face of it. It's the story of uh, a young mixed-race black woman leaving home after um, the trauma of a school shooting in which her boyfriend's killed when she's when she's really young. And seeing that as a catalyst to go out and try and discover what her identity is in the America of that time. And that's the kind of road trip that takes her to San Francisco. And in the process, she, she encounters a variety of different characters uh, and people whose interactions with her change the course of her life or their lives, you know. And one of those interactions is with, uh, again, for the music angle, a, a band and a musician who are from Scotland but moving through in the early 80s on a fairly traumatic uh, American, disastrous American road trip. So it's it's kind of trying to work out how they all connect back at the end. But the punchline in it, and I don't want to give away, is the perspective of the story isn't, uh, and who's telling that story at any given point in time isn't always what you think. So the reader has to then, you know, the reader then has to kind of work out: can I really trust this person? And is that reliable narration? Or but you're you're navigating people through fairly sizable and substantial events in history, primarily American history, but also the bookends of of the, the story. You know, begin with that shooting and then finish in the aftermath of the 2014. Scottish referendum for independence. I probably haven't done that justice there and I, I, I am not sure if readers are listening that many of them will be going to Amazon on the strength of that recommendation. But, well, um, but you also need to look at your hit rate, my friend, and kind of go, okay, well, look, look, we, let's trust you. I love the fact that you talk about the fact that sometimes you don't know what these books are until times later, because that's exactly the same as like, how Paul and other writers, obviously, of songs will talk about. Like, in, the, in the moment, they're not really sure, but then years yeah. later, they'll kind of go, oh, actually, I, I realise now that's about that thing there. Yeah, and the title, I suppose, just to finish off that analogy, the Dashboard Elvis thing, um, if you're looking for an exemplification of the decline of America over a period of time, then I kind of felt Elvis was a good 
example of that. Someone who at one point was young and beautiful and vibrant and exciting. And then through a, a series of interactions with other people and being abused and, and, you know, not, not physically abused necessarily, but financially abused and misguided ends up bloated and a distant shell of what he once was. I think it's an analogy for America and my feelings towards America over that period. That's a pretty accurate. It's a weird thing, and I'm sure other people are the same, that America abhors me at times in terms of what it does to its people and its civil rights and all these other things that I find, you know, incredibly distasteful. But I'm still magnetically drawn to it, whether it's New York or Chicago or San Francisco or other places which I've been fortunate to work in. There's still something about that cultural magnetism that I can't deny. It's a weird, weird contradiction. And I suppose that's what the book's trying to get at, I think. Oh, well, look, man, that's lovely to hear you talk about that. Thank you so much. Um, I have two final questions for you before you go. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? I think I'm going to go with maybe a wee bit more obscure. I've, I've listened to a lot of the podcast and I don't want to fall into the same... You don't want to say Tube Station or Wild World, do you? Okay. No, because if, <laughs> if you're going to make a playlist, I want my choice to stick out. So I'm going to go with It Just Came to Pieces in My Hands. Oh, Nice. B-side of, um, was it Solid Bond in Your Heart? Why that song? It kind of captures what I, what I really like about Weller. And, it, and it's a dis- that, that song's a real distant cousin of To Be Someone from All Mod Cons. And it probably identifies Weller as someone who's self-aware about the, the problems of fame and the problems of becoming a celebrity and acknowledging that all those kind of things can change the kind of person you are, you know. And I like that. I I love the fact that someone who might be, particularly someone quite young, getting involved in the music industry has got the self-awareness to understand that it's, to be honest, it's quite shallow and it's quite fake. And Mm. if you're aware of that and you can write articulately about that, then... I think you're likely to be able to avoid that. And that, and I think he has. I, I mean, we talked about this earlier on, you know, someone who's not become a bloated celebrity that is never walking the streets. And, you know, he seems really, really comfortable in his own skin at the minute. And I think that's brilliant. I think it's great. Still producing fantastic music that makes a difference, certainly to me and a whole lot of other people, but isn't doing it from an ivory tower somewhere, you know? I love that song. There's a version of that song on the Tokyo gig, isn't it? The um, Far Out Far East video, The Style Council. And it's yeah. just him and, and Jay Williamson, Jay Ella Ruth, she is now, just a cappella singing. And it's just beautiful. It's just wonderful. There's, there's one line in it, and for years, and I think probably only recently, I realised I was I was kind of singing and thinking the wrong line, you know? I think the line's, I thought I was a maritime marvel. And I used to think when he sings that, I thought I was married to Monroe. As if he's talking about Marilyn Monroe, you know, um, which does work as a lyric in that context as well, right? in that song. Well, yeah. well, when you when you're thinking about the context of fame as well, then yeah, it exactly. definitely does. Eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Final question. So, purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourself, hear your stories, and your connections. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller at the end of this podcast. That's the goal, right? That's why I created the podcast in the first place. If it happens. What should I ask him? I think what I would quite like to know at the moment, because I'm listening to a lot of it at the minute, is the remix versions of the songs would make an album in their own right. I think you should ask him, how involved is he in that process in terms of the choices of who remixes it? And are there any remixes that he's heard of his own songs that he thinks are better than the originals? Oh, nice. Love it, love it, love it. Brendan Lynch was on the podcast before you obviously did a bunch of great remixes and I, I created a little Spotify playlist and then you realise actually so many of those remixes aren't on any albums, aren't available even on The Will of the People, the most recent one we missed off a load of stuff. The Fly on the Wall box set isn't, I don't seem to be able to find that on Spotify or Amazon Music or anything like that to create a playlist. So you're right, an album of all of those remixes, a box set of all of those remixes would be fabulous. So so what have you done? you created your own personal playlist, have you? Yeah, I have actually and I'm, I'm listening to them in the car at the moment moment going up to work and stuff they're really diverse i mean it's it's um but it's it's still undeniably that vibe of the original song it's it's a really interesting way to listen to i think he should i mean i, I think he should put that out as a an album i'd buy it and again, <laughs> again i'd buy in his name on it as i think we've already established <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. David, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been really lovely. It's great to meet you. Thank you. And the podcast's brilliant. I really like it. Honoured to be asked to be on it. My thanks once again to David F. Ross. You can find out more about his books on my website. Just head to the show notes for this episode of the podcast. You'll find us, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks, David. Much appreciated. What a fabulous guest he was. I should also say thanks to you for listening to the podcast. Much appreciated. Do share on your social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'd also like to say thank you if you came along to our big Weller Weekender in Woking as well. It was lovely to see so many of you there. Some of you telling me how you've been listening to this podcast since the very beginning there from day one. Thank you. But some of you new listeners as well, all welcome, of course, as I say. Here Comes the Weekend was a fabulous experience. Much appreciated to you for coming down. And cheers to Stuart D. Bill and Nikki Weller for inviting me to MC as well. What a joy. More on that to come in future episodes, so stay tuned. If you want to get in touch, you can on Facebook. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast or on Instagram, it's the same. And Twitter, at Weller Fan Pod. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.